Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder. Surface with hope. My name is Amy Isham. Today we're seeking an answer to the question, who am I? We know more about ourselves than ever before. We can get a DNA sample to 23andMe and discover extensive information about our biological family and our own physical characteristics. We can develop an online persona for a cluster of social media platforms and present ourselves any way we want. But how can we know who we really are? To explore this question, I thought we should ask someone well-known for delving into the concept of the self, French philosopher René Descartes. Now, unfortunately, René died of pneumonia in 1650 when the Queen of Stockholm made him get up too early in the morning to teach her. So I thought we should ask a professor of French studies instead. We've nominalised the self. We've made it the self, given it a definite article. That's served us wonderfully well in many ways, but in some ways it creates a whole truckload of problems. I think making the self into a noun might not have been the greatest way to come to an understanding of it. Dr. Chris Watkin is an Associate Professor in French Studies at Monash University, where he holds an ARC Future Fellowship. Chris writes books and journal articles, teaches, makes YouTube videos, and is the author of Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. Chris, thanks so much for stepping in for Descartes today. (laughs) Thank you, Amy. I feel very intimidated now, but um, I'm going to give it a go. Um, (laughs) And everything I say, I need to, to put this disclaimer in, will be in my own name. I do not claim to speak for any deceased French philosopher. Look, it's it's a good thing we can't, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. I wanted to ask a few questions about who you are before we get into who we are. So you grew up, I think it's in, you say that you grew up in York. Is that the same as Yorkshire? Uh, York is the capital of Yorkshire. So I did certainly grow up in Yorkshire. Right. Um, I didn't quite grow up in York, although we had some wonderful visits there. Uh, when I was young. So I, I grew up near, the, the closest city was Sheffield in South Yorkshire. Right. So York was like the big smoke. <laughs> That's right. Well, the big centre of secondhand bookshops, actually, that was what we used to descend upon um, when I was little. Very fond memories of browsing the secondhand bookshops in York. Oh, fantastic. And so when you were leafing through those books, did you bring home any particular type of book or was it very different books? Well, I used to go around with my dad and he was a fan of two sorts of books, cricket books and 20th century literature. So they'd be the sections that um, we'd gravitate to. Um, But the wonderful thing, as you'll know, Amy, about secondhand bookshops is that you don't know what you're going to find. You know, it's not like sort of these electronic databases these days. Oh my goodness, I'm sounding old already. This is so embarrassing. (laughs) Um, Where you know exactly what you're searching for and then you go in, you know, and grab the single book you want without seeing anything else that's there. You walk into a remainder shop or a St. Anne bookshop in York, you've no idea what you're going to find. And we often ended up picking a whole rucksack full of books that we no idea existed before we walked into the shop. That's the beauty of it. And the smells. The smells are wonderful as well. Oh yeah. The hunt. And the smells. Mm -hmm. So can I ask, what do you think was the formative moment where you thought, I'd like to be a philosopher? Or was it too gradual for that? I think it was probably too gradual. Um, I'm sometimes asked about how I became a Christian, and that was pretty gradual as well. So I suppose I'm a a gradual sort of person. (laughs) Um, I've always liked the big questions, and I've always been attracted to thinking about the things we take for granted, I guess, ever since I was at school. And I just had the opportunity to do that at university. As an undergraduate, we were studying literature, uh, which of course engages with all the big human questions and is really profound as a mode of thinking through those key, you know, elements of of who we are and what we're doing here in the world. Mm. And we we did quite a bit of philosophy as well. I just loved it. I I was lapping it up. Um, You know, because here were people who were taking the really fundamental questions of life seriously. They weren't always agreeing with what I thought about those questions, but they were at least taking them seriously and had very interesting things to say about them. Mm. Yeah, I loved studying philosophy. It's a great, it's a wonderful discipline. It's so much fun. Mm -hmm. So 
We might start to go deeper now because we've set the scene of philosophy. So if my DNA test, my star signs, or my self-curation on social media can't define who I am, how can philosophy help? I suppose it all depends how we think about who we are. So like for some people, perhaps the the DNA is the key, Mm. you know, and they think I will be satisfied in knowing who I am once I know this, that or the other about my DNA. And, you know, someone else might think really my star sign is the most fundamental thing about me. So it's sort of beauty in the eye of the beholder, in a sense. Different people have different expectations and different criteria that they want fulfilled to have a sense of who they are. And so I suppose the question is then, which of those criteria are, hmm, how how would you judge it? It'd probably be something like, which tend to lead to what most people would consider healthy and flourishing lives and, and mm. you know, which criteria would seem to be superficial. But again, you know, different people will say different things about those. So anyway, how do we work out who we are? Well, it, it's almost certainly going to be a combination of things, isn't it? It's unlikely that there's one silver bullet that can deliver up the entirety of my identity, whatever we pack into that really dense and tricky term. Mm. And I think for most of us, just not not from a particularly Christian point of view, but just, you know, how we tend to think of ourselves, it it is a combination, isn't it? You know, you can't you can't get away from our embodiedness and we see ourselves in terms of these wonderful things called bodies that we have. Our thought life is pretty key to who we are. Mm. Um, and I think most people would be willing to accept that there's something more than brute computation there, that there's something that that some people would put the label spiritual on. And and if we miss that completely, then we're not fully grasping what, what it what it means to have a self or what it could mean to have a self. And and one way of looking at it that I found really helpful philosophically in the past is that we find ourselves embedded in a whole series of stories. And they help to tell us who we are. So there's the story of my family, there's a story of my community. And, you know, as I join different groups throughout my life, I become part of their stories. And so I'm an amalgam of lots of different stories. And of course, there'd be a lot to say about that from a Christian point of view as well. But just to begin with, on a, a sort of a, a general level, I think we we find it really hard to understand who we are if we don't see ourselves as part of different stories. Mm. So, We all love stories. Everybody loves stories. We're all raised on stories. Every culture has stories. This is a big question maybe, but what is the self and how can stories help us know that? Um, Well, I think the second part of that question is, is easier to tackle than the first and it might help us to get a, a hold on the first because one curious thing perhaps the Western tradition has done more than others, is that we've nominalized the self. We, we've made it the self, given it a definite article. Mm. Because we, we tend to do that with everything. We're quite a noun-heavy way of thinking. Mm. And that, that served us wonderfully well in many ways. But in, in some ways, it creates a whole truckload of problems. And I think this might be one of those areas where making the self into a noun might not have been the, the greatest way to come to an understanding of it. Mm. Um, stories help us understand selves, I think, because stories are about actions and things that are done. And we know people largely through their actions. You know, I've no idea what's going on in your head at the moment unless you either verbalize it or you act upon it and then I can see. So I, I can only know you really through what you choose to to reveal, to exteriorize about yourself. So to the extent that there is a thing in there called a self, I have no access to that and I can just put the clues together and, and work out what's going on. Mm. Um, and and that's that's what stories help us see. So if, if a character acts a particular way in a story or if a, a person in real life acts in a particular way and a story is told about that, that can reveal this thing that we call their self to us in a really helpful way. And just to become theological for a moment, that's the way that the God of the Bible does it. So he doesn't say, there is this abstract concept called the self, let me now reveal myself to you in a series of propositions. He he says, you know, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. So the way that you know me is by the stuff that I've done. 
I am the rescuing God. I am the providing God. I am the saving God. Mm. Um, that's who I am. That's how you you know me. And and I think, you know, stepping back out of a philosophical register for a moment, that's how it works with human beings as well. You know, I I know those to whom I'm closest in life through a long accumulated experience of the stuff that they've said and done. And that can be articulated in story form. But I, I don't have direct access to some sort of whatever it is called the self in them. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because I wonder if in previous generations, we've been defined more by what we do than who we are as an outward, like verbal or visual expression through some kind of social media presence or, or other ideas of the self. And I'm wondering, and I may be totally wrong here, but do you think that Descartes may have had some hand in that shaping our ideas about the self? Absolutely. He undoubtedly had a, a very strong influence on how we think of selves today. Charles Taylor is really good on this in A Secular Age, mm. where he talks about the emergence of what he calls the buffered self around the time of Descartes. So mm. previous to that, there was no very strict sense in which there were limits and boundaries on the self. It, it, Taylor calls it a porous self. There were spirits and influences that sort of, you know, came in and went out of what we now call the self. Mm. But he says, with Descartes and others, you suddenly begin to define the self against the non-self really quite strictly. And this is where you get this idea arising in modernity of the subject and the object. So everything that is quote-unquote inside, my subjectivity is, is the subject. And everything that's outside that is the object. And so you've got this hard border between the two. And that's really very strongly at the root of the way that most dominant strands of, of Western thought today think about selves. And it, it's been realized in recent decades, A, that it's not obvious that not everybody has always thought about selves that way. And also that that can be really quite problematic as well mm. in particular ways that, that we can go into, if you like. And so there's sort of a very heavy anti-Cartesianism, I guess, in European philosophy, many strands of European philosophy at the moment, because people have realized, wait a minute, if you cut the self off from everything that, that's outside it, then you sort of end up with a bit of a well, you can end up with a bit of a tyrant, yeah. you know, just exploiting and using everything else because they're, they're so distant from it. They're not part of it. They're not in, in sort of webs of mutual reliance with it. They're, they're a different substance yeah. in, in Descartes' terms. And so it's very influential and, and also somewhat problematic. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I want to get into what Cartesian means. Uh, the other day, my 13-year-old I was talking to her about something and she suddenly went, I've just realized that every other human being in the world is also thinking their own thoughts and doing their own things and sees things in a different way. <laughs> and it was like this leveling up happened in her neofrontal cortex where she understood, wow, there's more than just me and how I see everything. <laughs> Indeed. And as you're saying, it's a bit problematic if we don't realize that other people are also cognizant and aware so could you get into what you mean by Cartesian so we can unpack that a bit more? I, I'm using it in a relatively loose sense. So Cartesian in this conversation, meaning there's a hard border between the subject and the object. And also perhaps what we haven't mentioned yet, that I begin to know the self and all my knowledge of myself is grounded within my subjectivity. So I don't look outside myself to get the first sense of who I am. But, you know, in Descartes' very famous uh, phrase, uh, I am thinking, therefore I exist, sometimes translated, I think, therefore I am. Mm. Um, how do I know that that this is this thing that I call the self is not a trick of the light or some sort of dream? Um, well, if I think, then I must exist as his thinking. In other words, mm. even if I doubt that I exist, I must be thinking. Who's thinking? It must be me. Mm. So doubting my existence is a proof of my existence for Descartes. Now, that has been picked over with a whole 
treasure books full of fine tooth combs over the years. And people have found a lot of problems with that. But nevertheless, for him, you cannot possibly doubt your existence because in order to doubt it, you need to think. And if you're thinking, you exist. Mm. So he says that's the only firm foundation for thinking about the self. And obviously, it's a foundation that comes from within, which is really different to almost all the ways of the thing, thinking about the self that came before, which was I begin to understand myself by looking outside myself. In the theological tradition, of course, I, I look to God to get a sense of who I am. And it's in relationship with him that I discover who I am. Uh, well, not for Descartes. It's, it's a circular reference, if you like, I think, within my subjectivity. And therefore, I can't possibly doubt that I exist because to doubt, I must think. Yeah, and that's what, um, like, I, I always, I really enjoyed learning about Descartes because the way our philosopher lecturer described him was he kind of shut himself in a hot sauna and just contemplated and tried to separate, in a sense, almost his body from his mind. And as you said, that cogito ergo sum, or I think therefore I am, is so well known because of this thought experiment that he did. It's a really interesting story. He was actually seeking to help the church. So there were Peronian sceptics around who were saying, oh, we can't be sure of anything. Mm. Uh, and the church was really quite worried about this. And um, a cardinal called Cardinal Berul got in touch with Descartes and said, look, can you, can you come up with something to refute these pesky sceptics, please, because, you know, they're becoming quite a menace to the church. Mm. Uh, and so his attempt was to set truth on a really firm footing and to give the church and, you know, also philosophy um, a firm place to stand. Mm. Now, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't quite worked out as he intended, <laughs> um, but that, that was at least in part the, the impetus to which he was responding. Mm. Yeah, I do remember later on that he his ontological argument was saying, how can I trust that what I'm seeing is not a dream and that all of this is not a, a myth or an imagining? His argument was, well, I know that God wouldn't lie to me. God is reliable and so therefore I can trust my senses in a sense. Have I understood that right? <laughs> yes, the, the, the place of God in, so he, he wrote the, the short discourse on meth and then the longer meditations, meditations. and um, the place of God in the meditations is really contested. Mm. So some people say God is absolutely necessary, it's the linchpin of the whole thing, and if you take God away, it all falls apart. Interesting. Sort of along the lines that, that, that you've been saying, that you've got to trust the character of God, that he wouldn't be an evil demon and, and deceive you. And other people say, well, no, you know, he's just sort of, doing that so the church censors don't get on his back and actually the argument doesn't need God. So it, it goes it goes back and forth. Mm, yes, and I often found it a not a terribly satisfying argument, although an interesting one. So that's really helpful to have that background and the controversy around it. So we might move on. We've laid the foundation of Descartes and we've seen some of the consequences. One of the things you talk about in your book is the idea of possessive individualism. So you mentioned that the philosopher Locke states that every person owns his own body and his own physical labour. Why do you think Locke's idea was so revolutionary? Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's, uh, I'm actually doing a bit of research on this at the moment, so this is lovely to be able to speak about something that's fresh in my mind. Mm. Let me set a little bit of context, perhaps especially for Christian listeners, because Christian listeners will likely have heard of something called expressive individualism. Mm. It's what Carl Truman writes about in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and Robert Bellerin, Habits of the Heart. Um, and it's, it's an important piece of the jigsaw in understanding how we got where we are with the self. Um, possessive individualism is not utterly unrelated, but it's different, uh, taking a different angle on the self, uh, a different, telling a different story, I suppose, about the self to the one that, that Truman and others are telling. Uh, not a rival story, but a complementary one, I think. So Descartes puts these hard limits on the self. And then in his second treatise of government uh, in the 17th century, Locke comes along, John Locke, and within the course of arguing about the origins of civil society, he, he just <laughs> sort of throws out there an understanding of the self. Mm. It's actually in chapter five of that book, which is called Of Property. And property is really central to Locke. So the way that he understands, actually the way he understands God even, is, is really heavily influenced by the idea of property. Mm -hmm. Locke just sort of, in the course of a sentence really, he doesn't 
massively argue for this. He just says, look, this is obvious. He says that um, every man, he used using that gendered language to, to speak of the whole of humanity, every man has a property in his own person. Mm. In other words, we own ourselves. We treat ourselves as our own property. And that has implications for his understanding of property more broadly. So when we add our labor to something, mm. we are adding something of ourselves because we own our labor, because we own ourselves and so forth. And then that cascades forth into justifying a theory of property and, and so forth. Mm. But the, the very idea that everyone has a property in their own person has become incredibly influential and sort of taken for granted today. Yeah. The guy called C.B. McPherson wrote a really influential book called Possessive Individualism, where he draws this out of Locke and tries to draw it out of Hobbes as well, although it's, it's a lot less clear in Hobbes. But certainly in, in Locke, it's, it's front and center. And from, from the moment that I consider myself, whatever that is, or my person, whatever that is, to be something that I own, that sort of opens up what you might call a social imaginary of the self. Well, what do I do with things that I own? Well, I can change them. You know, if I own something, in the old Roman sense of dominion, it, to own something means to have the right to destroy it. So there's there's that sense of property in the tradition in which we're working with. But certainly I can do what I want with it and nobody can tell me what to do with it because I own it. That's what owning something means, you know, that's what property is about. And so that really reframes this idea of the self or the person with a, quite a different set of possibilities to those that were present previously. Now, I don't think this is Locke's intention, and he doesn't go there in the second treatise. And I think he would be quite, you know, he would raise his eyebrows to see what has been done with this idea. But nevertheless, it's right there uh, in the center of what he, what he does. Um, and so I think it's fair to say that for most people today, a, a dominant, although unspoken, sense of the self, like they're just taken for granted, of course, that's true, sense of the self, is that I own myself. Uh, and therefore, it, it's my business to do what I want with myself, whatever this thing called self is, uh, and, and nobody else's. Yeah, that's amazing. And you think about capitalism, where there's a sense that, especially in America, well, it's spread across the world, we have this sense that capitalism is good and ownership is good. And so the irony is that uh, coming to a sense of self, we now think almost think of ourselves as like a product or a precursor to becoming products. Well, that's sort of one of the one of the consequences, isn't it? You start thinking of persons as owning themselves as property. Well, what do you do with property? You 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 buy and sell it. It has a value. It has a market value. I think we see this perhaps most clearly today in the the language we use of, you know, personal branding and that sort of thing and you're having to to market yourself online. You know, you you curate and create a certain self that you hope will respond to market demand, and then you 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 sell it and see you know see who likes you and who buys it and so forth. But I wouldn't want to to restrict this commoditization of selfhood just to the online sphere. I think it's an easy whipping boy, isn't it? You know, we can always say, "Oh, look at what happens online, isn't it terrible?" <laughs> um, but it's it, it's just an intensification, I think, of things that are happening in in society more broadly. And and I think there is a market of selves. And we do, I think we all do, to some extent, commodify our selfhood and curate it within a market context. You can think of buying particular brands in order to protect, project a particular image of the self. It doesn't need to be branded, you know. If, if you don't wear a brand logo on, on your top, don't think that you're getting away from this. Everybody curates a certain sense of self and then markets that to other people. Mm. And I think it's so ubiquitous that again, we've we've probably lost the oddness of it. How peculiar that we should treat this thing that we've called the self as a commodity and that it should have a value on the market. If we parachuted, you, know, you don't parachute in from Mars, do you? If we came in our <laughs> spacecraft from Mars without any of the backstory and saw this, I think we'd just be scratching our Martian heads and saying, what on earth is this? Mm. You know, like, the, how did you get to this point where the self is a commodity that is bought and sold? How peculiar. And yet, because 
it's been by degrees and it's taken, you know, 300 years or so forth. We, we, we don't see the, the weirdness of this place that we've got to. Yeah. And I think, I think what you're saying is really interesting is that people are very concerned about expressive individualism and see that as a commodification of self. Whereas we've forgotten that this possessive individualism goes back a lot further and is probably a lot more embedded in how we think of ourselves. And so I feel like, in a way, that possessive individualism must have given way to the expressive individualism, where we part of our product that we curate now is not just, oh, I can provide labor, it's my whole self, it's this commodification of authenticity. So, how do you think we can honor the individual? value of human beings without dehumanizing or commodifying? Um, I think it's really hard from where we are. Let, let me shift over into a theological register because I want to I bring some ideas from the Bible to, to bear on that question because mm. I think they're really helpful in ways that I, I hope I'll be able to show. Yeah. So th- there are two books that really sum up a very interesting combination of ideas that have come out of the Bible. The first one is by a French philosopher called Alain Badiou, um, by no means a Christian philosopher. Like he's he's a, a, a full-on, you know, communist and proud of it and uh, very politically articulate about that. Um, and yet he wrote a book on, on the Apostle Paul called, in English, Saint Paul and the Foundation of Universalism. And he says that the idea of the universal that we have in our tradition of thinking, the idea that you can be part of a community that's not based on ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status, but a community that is genuinely open to all people, regardless of their qualities, is, is a Pauline idea. You know, and he goes back to this verse in Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And he says, that's new. Like you, do, you don't get that before Christ and Paul. Um, you've got ethnic communities, you've got, you know, communities that have something in common in terms of their, their qualities, but this is new. So he's saying Paul introduces this idea of the universal into the way that we think. Mm. Another book written a few years later, uh, this time by an Anglophone academic called Larry Seedentop, makes a very similar argument, but he does it for the individual. I think the book might be called The Birth of the Individual or The Emergence of the Individual, something like that. And he too traces that back to Paul. Um, And he says that the idea of the individual emerging from the community or from the crowd, not simply by virtue of their role, so we're not just talking about the king, but this particular embodied individual having salience because of their individuality, not because of the role they fulfill in society. He traces that back to Paul. Uh, and Paul's idea, you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He makes quite a lot of this idea of, of, of credo, I believe, not just my community assents to, or, or the, the, the cultural air I breathe is this, but I, I believe. Mm. Now, to the extent that both Badiou and Seedentop have a point, that's really very interesting. Because if... Both universality and individuality can be traced back to a common source. Then two ideas that we find often butting up against each other and grating against each other in contemporary society might not be quite as opposed as we might think. Mm. Because I think for us, there's, you know, obviously the, the individual is made a great deal of in our society and is seen as some sort of foundational value if, if I'm not expressing myself, if I'm not understanding and cultivating myself as an individual, then then there's something almost ethically deficient uh, about me. And yet we also hugely value the, the universality of, of community, you know, community that, that's not exclusive, that has no ethnic or, or gender boundaries or other boundaries to it. We love both those ideas. And it's hard to see, I think, often in a modern society, how those two things can go together. Mm. Because if I'm part of the group, then how do I emerge also as, as a unique individual who can't be subsumed under any communal identity? Mm. And the pathos of that, of trying to value both of those things and trying to find a way of, of giving 
both of those really important principles that enough room, I think, is a source of a great deal of anguish and um, anxiety and, and pain for modern people. Mm. But I think there are the the seeds in, in the biblical origin of those two ideas for how you can conjugate them, how you can have both radical universality and radical individuality together and how they don't compromise each other. Yeah, I, I think that's really powerful because I think um, we have this desire to be ourselves and to understand ourselves and to have a very clear identity, but we also have this longing to belong that's sort of separate from being a great person or being being Instagram ready. There's a real desire for genuine, caring community to embrace us. So I had a few thoughts about, I'm not sure if we've really answered this, but how do you think the Bible's story about the self is different from our current culture? And how do we reconcile the restrictions that perhaps the Bible puts on our identity? Um. I guess the first thing to say there would be that there isn't just one simple story of the self in late modern culture. Uh, and, and again, Charles Taylor is really good on this. He said, you know, the, the period that, that we sometimes call post-modernity is one of the fragmenting and fracturing of stories. So what distinguishes our age is not any one particular story, but the fact that there are lots of them <laughs> out there. And so we're not going to capture everything that late modernity thinks about the self in one story. Mm. But if we just take, you know, for sake of argument, the, the possessive individualism narrative as, as one of the dominant narratives of, um, of late modernity, I, I think the Bible is, is a really quite striking and, and quite um, radical contrast to that. And I think it's there in the biblical texts and, and also brought out very powerfully by the church father, Augustine of Hippo. You know, he, he was wrestling a lot, of course, with, with the idea of the self in the confessions. Um, and we can make a few observations mm. from how Augustine thinks of selfhood, and then we can take those back and compare them with um, possessive individualism. So like the psalmists, Augustine finds himself not by retreating into himself, but by going outside himself. So he's always in dialogue with God. It's really interesting that the Confessions, which is sometimes called the first autobiography, is actually written in the second person. He's addressing God throughout. He's talking to God mm. in order to explore who he is and finding himself in relationship rather than as some sort of isolated, buffered Cartesian self. And I think that reorients a lot of the, the questioning around selfhood. So the big question in relation to identity in the New Testament is not who am I, but if you want to put it this way, whose am I? In other words, you know, Jesus asked his disciples, not who are you, but who do you say that I am? And again, they, they find their selves in relationship uh, with with the God who made them uh, and who loves them. Mm. And there's also a dynamic in the Bible that I think is is foreign to a lot of late modernity. I, I think there are ways in which you see echoes of this, but it, it's largely foreign. It's the dynamic of losing oneself in order to find oneself. You know, so Jesus very famously says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, uh, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. And I think that's very hard to understand for us mm. because we, we very much have a linear sense of self. This is something I need to cultivate and tend to and grow, and that's how you get a self. Jesus says if you do that, you'll actually end up losing the very thing you're obsessing about. And and I don't I don't think that's such a hard dynamic perhaps for us to understand as it might appear because a similar thing could be said in relation to something like happiness. Yeah, I'm sure most people listening to this will have had the experience of seeking happiness. Like you're getting up one morning and thinking, you know, I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps. I want to make myself happy. And then the, the very fact that you're searching for that thing, meaning that nothing quite hits the mark, mm. and you end up just as grumpy or as stressed as you were at the beginning of the day. And on other days, 
when you haven't really given a second thought to happiness. You've done something that perhaps you didn't fancy doing. You might have been serving or helping someone else or whatever. And then you get to the end of the day, you think, golly, that was just a really fulfilling day. And I'm really happy about it. Um, and so this sense of not seeking to grasp onto the thing, but letting it go for the sake of something greater. And then, lo and behold, finding, oh, that was the way to hold on to it. Who'd have known? You know, I don't think is is such a, a weird concept for us. And that's at the heart of a biblical idea of selfhood. You know, so Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. And, you know, the, the modern world holds up his hands in horror and says, what? Your, your self has been, <laughs> you know, annihilated. What on earth is going on? Um, and yet, uh, as that passage goes on, Paul describes how now, you know, his life is in Christ. And he says, the life I now live. And you think, wait a minute, you just died. What do you mean the life you now live? There's such a complexity of selfhood there. And it's, it's for the Christian, I think, a delicious complexity because it is this dynamic of the way the way to find it is is to lose it. That's amazing. I was literally just going to ask about the gaining the self through losing self idea in the Bible. And that illustration you gave about when you're seeking something, you often don't find it. Just like at the beginning of our conversation, you were saying when you go to a secondhand bookshop, you don't go in there looking for a limited edition poetry book. You you go in there and you discover that's the adventure. <laughs> there you go. The self is like a secondhand bookshop. It is. Or a life is like a secondhand bookshop where you discover you discover joy you didn't know was going to happen through losing all your expectations. <laughs> I like that how you've explained it could be a good thing to lose. If you are thinking about yourself, you aren't living as the self. You're not being the self you actually hope to be in a sense. And as you said, when you're serving that is often when you go, oh, wow, that was that brought me great joy and I wasn't even thinking about joy. And, and I think just another bit of the jigsaw cost, I think so far there's there's sort of a sense of, of what the Bible might mean by self, but it's quite nebulous and potentially a little bit misleading. So I, I think another really, really important element is that the self, biblically speaking, is not a static thing. It's not some sort of unchanging inner core, but it, it is itself part of the story. Uh, and so, you know, it, the, the, the human story and then the, the, the story of each of us, you know, starts off in Genesis 1, where God created a perfect world and people in his image in perfect harmony with each other and with him. So that's, if you like, the, the baseline. That's the, the, the creator's design. But then, of course, Genesis 3 comes along and everything gets, gets messed up. And so the way that I am now, myself now, is not that perfect original design. My, my, my thinking and my emotions and every aspect of me is, is wonky. It's off-centre. It's, it's lopsided. It's tainted by, by this thing that the Bible calls sin. Mm. But that isn't the end of the story either. There's redemption, which is, you know, almost all of the Bible, the story of how God comes and rescues people. And so the sense that I have of myself right in the present as a Christian, is neither the self as originally created nor the self as it will finally be renewed. And so that the self is very much on a journey mm. for the Christian. And therefore, I think I am to expect as a Christian person that my sense of self is going to be quite sort of ungraspable at the moment. I, you know, I don't know about you and the listeners, but there are quite a few selves that dock around inside me, you know, and I'm not quite sure on any particular day which of them is going to pop its head up. And, and so there's a messiness. Mm. Um, and Augustine is brilliant on this. Like, if anyone wants to go deeper into this, just just feast upon the confessions, where he, he talks about this thing in Latin called distensio animi. I'm, I'm all spread out. There's like lots of selves grappling with each other and they're a bit bit of a mess. And it's only for Augustine when I look outside of myself. I don't try and make sense of that mess, but I look away from myself to God, that he talks about his self being gathered together in relationship with God. Hmm. So, so I think as Christians, we're not to expect to be able to gather ourselves together, I guess is what I'm saying. But as we look outside ourselves to God, we will find the self cohering in a way that when we were looking inside and trying to make sense of it, it, it it's just a mess. Like what 
who am I? What is going on here? I've, you know, one day I'm this thing and the other day I'm, I'm the next thing and I, I can't make sense of myself. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense about why a relationship with God makes helps you understand yourself because we often are different people in different relationships with other people. Like when we're having to put on headphones and be professional on a podcast, we're different than when we're at home and our kids are hungry and just need something from us. We're such different people, but God is is such a complex being. He can understand all of ourself. That's right. And then we're, we're a third person when we're behind the wheel in a traffic jam and, you know, on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to see me in the morning in traffic. That's not the self I'm, I'm proud of. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. <laughs> so a little bit of a bonus question now. Chat GPT, I think when we when I last talked to you about this, it was April, and, but now it's become a bigger thing and it's everywhere. And I was thinking about, I don't know if you saw the 1980s film, Electric Dreams. Right. Patrick Dempsey, he gets a computer and no one has computers. The computer becomes sentient and he asks the computer, how can you talk? And he says, oh, why, why shouldn't I talk? And he says, well, you don't have a brain. And the computer asks him, what is a brain? And he says, memory cells that can think. And he says, well, what am I? And he says, well, your memory cells that just process. <laughs> so do you think that that's an accurate description of chat GPT? I think it's an extension of a question that people have been asking for centuries, which is what is it that makes us human? What distinguishes us from things that look humanish, but that we don't customarily classify as human. And, and often that's been, well, theologically it was angels. Uh, and then for the longest time it was animals. And now it becomes, you know, thinkable that, that computers or algorithms or whatever ChatGPT is, I'm, I'm no expert, you know, the software code enters that conversation. Mm -hmm. And the history of that conversation is one of people rather confidently identifying the thing that sets humans apart from animals and then somewhat sheepishly realizing that perhaps it doesn't quite in the way that they thought it did. And so you've, you've had lots and lots of candidates. Sometimes it was thought to be, you know, in the sort of medieval period, our bodies, the fact that we are upright, you know, Thomas Aquinas says, so we can look up at the stars as opposed to other animals that walk on our fours. A lot of people have thought that it was our rationality, whatever that means, and other people have thought that it's our ability to suffer. There's an argument, Paul Ricoeur talks about this a little bit in his um, book, One Self as Another, that it's our ability to be held accountable, imputability, he calls it. We can go to court and be on trial for something. And that is key to understanding hmm. us. We have responsibility in a way that, you know, if ChatGPT caused someone, for example, you know, heaven forfend to commit suicide, you wouldn't sue ChatGPT, you would sue its creators, I suspect. Hmm. You wouldn't sue the algorithm itself. That makes no sense. So imputability is, is construed as something fundamental to humanity. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's some truth in a lot of these things, but the problem is if you hang the hat of what it means to be human on any one or indeed any combination of those things, you can always find awkward cases at the extreme. So if you say our rationality, for example, or our use of language, which has been another big one, is what makes us human. Well, hold on. There are some humans that either do not yet have those things, or at least don't have as much of them as many animals do, mm. or who no longer have those things and almost certainly will never have them again. So are you saying that they're not human? And some people just bite the bullet. You know, Peter Singer, I guess, is, is, is the greatest example of this and says, well, actually, you know, some humans with severe mental impairments are, are not as valuable and, and worth caring for as, as some animals who have greater capacities. Um, but most people, I think, would hesitate to go there. And so I'm suspicious of any understanding of human beings that says this is the thing that makes us special as humans. Mm. Um, because the history of that has not been a pleasant one. And so, you know, to go back to your original example, what do we have that ChatGP doesn't? I'm, I'm not sure that's where I'd start. Because I think whatever you end up with, 
it's not inconceivable that somewhere down the line, ChatGPT or something like it will have that thing. And then you're back to square one. Mm. Or you can find some human beings somewhere who don't have that thing. And then you're, you're back to a, a much more odious square one. And this is where I think theologically you, you have tools at your disposal that, that are just really healthy in this context. And it's very hard to get those same tools without a theological framework. And I think the theological framework is that the status and value and worth of human beings, biblically speaking, is not located fundamentally in anything inside those human beings, but it is located in relationship with God. So whatever else it means or doesn't mean in Genesis 1, to be made in the image of God, I think it means that our identity is irreducibly relational and our, our worth and dignity is irreducibly relational as well. In other words, we have great value and dignity because God bestows it upon us. And I, even as I say that, I can, I can hear some people caviling and say, what? No, it needs to be intrinsic. We don't owe anyone anything. I don't want my worth to be in anything outside me, but hold on. The moment you say that, I think it's very hard not to be hanging some people out to dry who don't have those particular qualities. And the beauty of human value and dignity being located in something outsiders is that you don't have to go scrabbling around for that one thing that humans have that nothing else has, you know, and then hold onto that for dear life and just hope that no computer can ever you know, fulfill that thing because then you've got to go back to the drawing board. Mm. So it's, it's the very idea of rooting human dignity through a particular capacity that we possess that I think is the problem. And so I, I, I wouldn't ask the question, what do we have that ChatGP doesn't? Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that we have that it doesn't. I'm not denying that. I just don't think you want to hang the hat of human dignity on those things. That's so helpful because I think they're all the ethical quandaries that we fall into when we place human value and dignity on a particular capacity. It's so true. I think the theology does make sense of it because otherwise what makes humans any different in terms of capacity? So just to wrap up, thanks so much for talking about the theological grounding of identity in the self. So how has your personal faith helped you make sense of your identity, if you don't mind me asking? Not at all. Um, I, I suppose it's a personal appropriation of, of the stuff that I was talking about previously. So not expecting myself to make sense to myself here and now and not demanding a sort of transparency of myself. I think the Bible predisposes me and, and everyone who reads it to think of themselves as messy mm. and um, really quite obnoxious at times, and yet also capable of, of doing great good as well. You know, we're, we're complex beings. Um, there's that wonderful verse in Jeremiah, isn't there, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Now, one thing I take from that is don't expect to know yourself completely. Um, you are not, you know, speaking to myself, you are not transparent to yourself. Uh, but that's okay, because God isn't finished with me yet. Um, and I'm part of this story. Um, I'm not what I was made to be, uh, but neither am I what I will be. Uh, and so I'm hanging in there, looking away from myself, looking to Christ, uh, seeking very imperfectly to follow this sort of non-linear trajectory of losing one's life to save it, uh, and trusting, I guess, trusting myself to him, that it, it will uh, you know, in those beautiful 1 Corinthians 15 words, be sown perishable but raised imperishable, that, that all the paradoxes and unsavory corners of the self will be sorted out in time. Uh, but I don't have to sort them out right now because uh, my job is to, uh, you know, again in Jesus' words, take up my cross and follow him. Mm, thanks so much, Chris. And I love that you remind us that that's an iterative process it's not linear. We go back and forth. We think we've made some progress. We find another pocket of sin and brokenness, but there's also that great potential for good. Thanks so much for meeting with us today and talking to Deeper Questions. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. 
It's done what it says on the tin. <laughs> Your questions were very deep. I hope I've done something to scratch the surface of these huge issues. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deeper Questions. Who am I? I hope you enjoyed listening to Chris. I always enjoy talking to him because I really appreciate the way he challenges culture, but he does it so respectfully and generously. I wonder what you thought about this episode and whether it helped you get your head around who you are. We did quite a brief whistle-stop tour of the philosophical concept of the self and we only touched some of the major players but it does seem to be something that's heavily influenced by René Descartes and his work in the 1600s. Although his research was commissioned by the Catholic Church at the time, for good or ill, his separation of the self from its context of the outside world may have had implications for us as people and how we see ourselves and other people. And I don't just mean separating the self from being in relationship with God, which you may or may not agree with, but it also separates us from our connections with other people. A lot of the wisdom in our current culture tells us that we need to turn inwards and contemplate to discover ourselves. But often the revelations of what makes us who we are come when we connect with other people. If we really want to know who we are, we ask our mum, our dad, a friend, co-worker, but maybe they'll all give us different answers and some of them will be good and some of them will be bad. Still, it helps us to see that we can't control the way people see us, even if we cultivate a persona. I thought Chris's observations about possessive individualism were really key. Who would have thought that in previous generations we didn't just assume that we owned our bodies and our labour? Chris's book, Biblical Critical Theory, aims to use the Bible to analyse our culture. And I would say the critique that the Bible has in light of possessive individualism is that it can separate our identity from God. And as Christians, we believe that God created us all. As Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So if we go back to the time when the psalmist wrote King David, we can go back to a worldview that says we have a clear identity as being made by God. And another part of the Bible the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 2, says that we were made in God's image. I feel like this is a profound way of seeing people, and I hope it helps you feel valued as you reflect on who you are. Thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Amy Isham. If you like this podcast, please like, share and subscribe and share it with your friends. Don't hesitate to drop us a line and check us out at thirdspace.org.au.